If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you're visiting with us, um, our method is to just go through a particular book of the Bible, um, section by section, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And uh, so we're doing that with Thessalonians. We're in a portion of Scripture which is challenging. I think it's challenging because sometimes we look at life through a very simple lens. And we don't take into account that we live in a complex, complicated world. And we also live in a spiritual world that the physical is not all that there is, that there is a significant spiritual reality. And these two worlds interact with one another. Last week, we spent some time talking about the perishing, those who will perish and spend eternity away from the face of God and the power of his might. This week, we spend some time looking at those who are being saved and the determination of God that in the end, we would be glorified in Christ Jesus. In both of these scenarios, there is so much more going on than meets the eye. And so as we read this text this morning, I'm going to read the text that, we, that I spoke from last week so you get the balance and then the verses that we'll look at this week. 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. God, help us as we look at these words this morning. These verses that we're looking at this morning explain how it is that God takes us from a deceived state and from a mind that refuses to love the truth and a lifestyle that delights in wickedness to believe in the truth and to be saved. What Paul says is fairly straightforward here. It says that God chose you in eternity past from the beginning to be saved. 
And he has called you in order that you might gain the glory of Christ. It's meant and intended to be an incredible encouragement to the people of God. It's meant to be a security blanket, so to speak, for those who are in Christ. And these two verses, or these three verses, are one of the most succinct descriptions of salvation that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. It covers issues along the lines of election, salvation, regeneration, faith, evangelism, preservation, and the perseverance of God. All of those are wrapped up in the process of being saved or salvation. And as Paul has got these things swirling around in his head, the first thing that comes to his mind is thanksgiving. As he thinks about these things, as he thinks about salvation and how it is that anyone comes to be saved, he's overwhelmed with a heart full of gratitude and thanks. It's very much like First, Second Thessalonians 1 verse 3 where he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul sees the outworking of the love of God in the lives of these believers. And the first thing that he does is he overflows with thanksgiving. Well, that's the same as we come then to think about salvation. That the first thing that goes through Paul's mind is thanksgiving. He's thankful for the saving work of God. That God does not leave us all to perish. He's thankful for the transforming word of God through which we come to believe in Jesus Christ. He's thankful for the perfecting work of God in our lives such that at the end we will be glorified in Christ. He's thankful that salvation is not an afterthought. It's not a, hot and, or a, a hit and miss reality. That Our salvation is purposed by God. And he reminds them, as we will see, that our salvation is rooted in the love of God. I think we don't spend enough time thinking about the love of God as it relates to our salvation. In another place, Paul writes, he says, Before the world began, God loved you. He says, In love, he predestined you for adoption. That's an amazing concept. We often think of um, unconditional love. We seek unconditional love. We hope that there's such a thing as unconditional love. The only place you will ever find unconditional love is from God. You will not find it anywhere else. God loves us unconditionally. And there he says, brothers, and by that he refers to brethren, brothers and sisters, the family of God, those who are saved, brothers loved by the Lord. That's, that's a, a wonderful, wonderful phrase even in itself to think about. Loved by the Lord in contrast to the perishing who are deceived and who are at war and who the wicked one is intent on destroying. And as we will see, we are loved before we've done anything good or bad. We're loved from the foundation of the world. We're loved simply because God loved us. I was trying to work this through in my head to come up with some kind of illustration of this. And the only thing I could think of is that my wife and I have three boys. And at the time when we realized that Kathy was um, pregnant, 
We had no idea whether we were going to have a boy or a girl. We had no idea about anything that those children would do, but we started loving them. And we began to develop and cultivate a love for this little child that was growing in my wife's womb. Before they had done anything right or wrong, before they ever became a teenager, before they ever, you know, did anything that tests you, our love for them was formed simply because we loved them. And that love for them sustained us as we worked through those difficult times, which almost every parent has and almost every child has towards their parent in a much greater, richer, fuller way. God loved us before we were ever born, before we had ever done anything right or wrong. He loved us. Beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God, as the songwriter said, is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. Then Paul talks about how that love was expressed. And he says, therefore... We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. We have here an outline of the saving purposes of God now and how salvation works. We have the initiative of God. God chose you. We have the end in mind to be saved, and we have the means through which we are saved, which is through the work of the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's a real compact description of how one is saved. Flowing from the love of God is his decision to choose us and save us. I find these big truths, and I find them wonderful truths. And my intention this morning is not to argue. We don't win too many points by arguing. My intention is to try and just take you to Scripture and show you how Scripture describes our salvation and the chose are being chosen by God. And so what has God done? He says, God chose you. It's an unusual word that he uses for being chosen here. It's only used three times in the New Testament, this particular word that refers to God's election of us. It has the idea of taking to oneself, having a choice and choosing this over that. And so God has taken us to himself. He has chosen us. And as I've already indicated, God's choosing is rooted in love. In 1 Thessalonians 1.4, where Paul is also writing to these same Thessalonian believers just a little bit earlier, he says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness. Oh, that's not the right verse. Uh, there's one in Thessalonians where it says that God, um, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Sorry, that's 1 Thessalonians 1.4. I want you to be able to see that so you know I'm not making up. For we know, brothers... Loved by God that he chose you. And so God's choosing of is rooted in his love for us. The gospel came to us because of God's love for us. If you want to grasp something of the love of God, we are taken to election or God's choice of us to begin to wrestle with how it is that God loves us. It was God's love for us that motivated him to choose us. 
Why does God love anyone in particular? The, the scripture doesn't tell us this. It doesn't give the explanations for God's love. It doesn't give the whys for God's love. It just simply tells us that God loves us. It's one of the secret things that belong to God that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29. But you can trace the saving work of God back through Scripture. It goes way back through Scripture. But one that I will read for you is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, where there Moses is describing God's love for the people of Israel and his choosing of them. He says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured procession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord your God has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Moses notes that the reason for God's love is simply that God loves us. John Stott wrote, he chose us because he loves us and he loves us because he loves us. He does not love us because we are lovable, but only because he is love. And with that mystery, we must rest content. You've got to rest in the love of God. You've got to accept the love of God. You've got to receive the love of God. And one of the ways that is, that is expressed is in election. I understand the Doctrine of election troubles people, the fact that God chooses us, but it shouldn't. Almost everywhere where it's used in Scripture, it's used to help the people of God understand certain things. It's used for practical purposes, not for sort of theological debates and discussions and arguments. It's uh, used in Scripture in different places to encourage assurance, not presumption. In other words, God has chosen us and that should assure us that he will not let us go. You can read that in Romans chapter 8, verses 31, following there, and where it talks about the fact that God has loved us in Christ Jesus and nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. That is a wonderful assurance. It's not based on my hanging on. It's not based on my clinging to him. It's not based on my working. It's not based on my sinning. My salvation is rooted in the love of God for me. It's also intended to encourage holiness and not moral apathy. I have heard this sometimes and it saddens me that people will, will twist the doctrine of the election and God's choosing us to mean, well, that, doesn't, that means that I can do whatever I want then because God has chosen me, therefore I can live however I want because he'll never let me go. And that's never found anywhere in Scripture. For instance, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, we read there, put on then as God's chosen ones. Put on there as God's chosen ones. How do you respond to the love of God that, that has chosen you and elected you? How do you respond to that? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. The doctrine of election is not meant to produce moral apathy. It's meant to create a desire for holiness. It's also intended to encourage humility, not pride. 
Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes uh, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider, your, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble, noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Election is, is the great leveling field amongst men and women, boys and girls. We're not chosen because we are especially good people. We're not looked over because we're especially bad people. We're not chosen because we serve wonderfully. We're not neglected because we don't serve at all. We're chosen simply because God loved us and set his love upon us. All boasting in our salvation is, is taken out then. And all praise and thanksgiving and honor for our salvation goes to God and God alone, who out of his great love has saved us. It's meant to stir witness, not lazy selflessness or selfishness. In other words, the doctrine of election is rooted in evangelism and missions and telling others about the gospel. Far from saying, well, God has elected or God has chosen, therefore I'll just sit back because he'll choose who he will and I don't know who he's chosen, so I'll do nothing. No, the Bible tells us again and again and again that God's electing purposes are worked out through evangelism and through missions as we go into all the world with the gospel, that the gospel call of God comes to men and women, boys and girls, through evangelism and through our testimony about Christ Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. When has God chosen us? There are different texts of the Greek Bible, and sometimes those texts don't agree with one another. I think the best translation to follow or the text to follow is not that God has chosen us as first fruits, but that God has chosen us from the beginning. I think some of your texts, even what Andrew read, God has chosen you from the beginning, from the book of Ephesians. It says, God chose you in us or in him from the foundation of the world. John describes the perishing in the book of Revelation as everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. The point really is that salvation is not an afterthought on God's behalf. God doesn't sit up in heaven and wonder who's, who's going to choose me and who's not. Uh, I wonder how that's going to affect a person's life. No, God has chosen from the very foundation of the world, which is wonderfully assuring and comforting. And why has he chosen from the foundation of the world? To be saved. 
See, salvation is this, is this dual work. It's a, it's a work that, 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 that in, involves the work of God to us, opening our hearts and calling us and drawing us to him. But there's also a response that is required as the call of God comes to us. And God calls us or God chooses us to be saved. This is the opposite of, being, of perishing, which we read in the few verses before, in verses 9 to um, 12. There are those that are perishing and there are those that are being saved. The perishing are the ones that will suffer eternal punishment and eternal ruin away from the presence of God and from the glory of his might. To be saved means to be delivered from that and to be transferred into wonderful kingdom of God and to be given eternal life and to be given us the hope of everlasting life. It's to be made pure in body and soul. It's to be made perfect and complete. Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. I do things for the sake of those chosen to obtain salvation. You see, I think that anytime we realize our predicament, that when we actually come to realize how desperately, how desperate our situation, how how much in danger we are of being separated eternally from God as we begin to recognize the grip that sin has on us, the grip that sinful habits have on us, the the inability that we have to change ourselves, to change the way we think, to change the way we act, when we realize that there's nothing that we can do to wash away the guilt of our sins and our behaviors, when we recognize that there's nothing we can do to take away the shame that's not on the outside of us that we can wash off with a shower, but that's on the inside of us that eats us up when we recognize that kind of stuff and then we look at God and, we, and, and we're saved, we don't ever look at ourselves and wow, I really did good. I saved myself. No, we think, God, your mercy and your grace and your love and your forgiveness, it blows me away. So God chose us to be saved Paul writes to Titus, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested his words through preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. In other words, preaching is the way in which God ordains that men and women will be saved. The hearing of the gospel is the path through which God calls us and draws us to himself. This is why it is so essential that we proclaim the gospel, that we talk about the gospel, that we gather our family around and we share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, that when they wrestle with shame and guilt, we tell them that Christ can forgive them, that Christ has died for their sins. And as we come to a knowledge of a truth, it's as we come to that knowledge of a truth that there's a hunger in us to become holy and there's a hope that begins to build in us of eternal life. And these are all part of God's promises before the ages began. In another place, he says, therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. How are the electing purposes of God worked out in the life of one who is perishing? This is a really important question to ask. Well, Paul says there's two ways. 
he summarizes the saving work of God, the means through which the call of God is worked out in individual's life. He says, through the sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. And the order there is really important. Through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. Why is it important? Because a heart work must take place first. God must do heart surgery on us before we can ever respond to him in a saving way to the gospel that is proclaimed to us. And so he says, the first thing that's necessary is a, is a work of the Spirit of God in us. And you say, well, what is that work? What is the sanctifying work of the Spirit that Paul is talking about? And it's, it's one of the most incredible works that, that, that there is. Well, they're all amazing. But notice Paul moves from God's love for us. He flows then into God's choice of us, which then leads to our transformation, which begins with a work of the Spirit in us. This is the divine side of our salvation. And what is the work of the Spirit that Paul's talking about here? It's the work of new life. It's the work of regeneration. It's what Jesus describes in John chapter 3, where he says, one must be born again. There's no other way into the kingdom of God but to be born again. And this isn't even a work of ourselves, but it's a work of God. And so this work of the Spirit that he's talking about is this initial work where the Spirit comes and he gives us life. Because until that happens, we're dead. This is the thing I, I don't think we, we wrestle with enough and we work ourselves through, but, but just as a, a physical corpse has no physical response to any physical stimuli, it can't. You can go in there and you can cook the most wonderful wheel, meal and it won't wake that corpse up. You can go play the loudest music and it won't wake that corpse up. There is nothing that will bring that corpse back to life. Well, so too with us physically. When we sin, we die, spiritually, sorry. And the Bible says that all of us are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And so we are unable to respond to God. We have no life. There's no spiritual life in us. And so in order for us to respond to the call of God, God first has to give us life. And this is the amazing work of the Spirit of God, where the Spirit of God creates new life in us. The Spirit who God used to create the world, that Spirit then creates new life in us. It's a wonderful work of God, whereby He takes we who are dead, and through the power of the Spirit, He brings us to life. Amen. We are all spiritual cadavers until God changes us by taking our spiritless heart and putting a new spiritual heart in us, thus making us alive. Do you sometimes wonder why people around you have no affection for Christ? No love for the gospel? Just hard words, harsh words? It's because they're spiritually dead. It means nothing to them. It can't mean anything to them. Do you know how you can pray for your children and your grandchildren and your husband and your wife and your brothers and your sisters and your neighbors? Pray that the Spirit of God would give them life. 
pray that God in his mercy would send his spirit to create new life in them and from that new life they respond then to the gospel. Which is what he says next. Through belief in the truth. The first side is the is the work of the spirit of God in us to give us new life. And then as that new life is, is growing in us and it's, it's, it's giving us a responsiveness to God, then as we hear the gospel, we believe in it and we trust in it. Our response to a faith to the gospel necessarily comes after the work of God in us to give us new life. And then if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see the contrast here? In, in those who are being saved, it says they believe in the truth in contrast to those who are perishing who refuse to love the truth. It's God even that enables us, though, to exercise faith. As he says in Ephesians, by faith you are saved through grace. But this not is not of yourself. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that nobody can boast. Loved ones, do you see how the scripture explains salvation? It says it's a work of God. All of it's a work of God. Why? So that nobody can boast. I can't, say, I can't pat myself on the back and say, wow, I, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm smarter than that person because I concluded that, that I needed to look to Christ. The Bible has none of that. The Bible says our salvation is all of God. True, there is a response and there's a confession. But even that response and confession is enabled by God. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So we are chosen by God and then we are called by God. This is the work of God in time and space, so to speak. Again, notice God's initiative to call, the end in mind to glorify us in Christ Jesus. And the means to that end is through our gospel. God has called us. This, the call of God is such a beautiful thing. I, I, many of you here, and I hope that by the end of this day, all of you here, I can only pray that that would be true, but many of you here have heard the call of God, and it is a wonderful thing. It's not sort of a voice that says, Paul, Paul. It's this internal thing which takes place in our heart where God irresistibly draws us to himself. As we hear the gospel, as we realize our need and as we realize the desperateness of our situation, as, as the gospel speaks to us about the beauty of Christ and we hear the invitation of Christ, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. God speaks to us. He says, go, listen, heed. I've got salvation for you. Come to me. It's this amazing work of God. Paul says in other places that God calls you through our gospel. It's this inner, irresistible voice that draws us to be reconciled to God. This is what Paul talks about back in 
um, First Corinthians or First Thessalonians, where it says, "We thank God constantly for this that when you receive the word of God, this is important." So right now, everyone's receiving the word of God. You're hearing the word of God. He says, but when you hear the word of God in which you receive from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. There's something that distinguishes in you and you say, that's just not Paul, that funny guy preaching up there that's, I'm listening. This is the word of God. There is an authority to it. There is a life to it. There is an eternal quality to it. And Paul says, you receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but as the word of God, which is at work in you. There's an energy in the word of God. There's a power in the word of God. It's the same word that's used to describe the power of Satan that is in the world, which we looked at last week, and the word of, uh, or the power of God, the deluding power of God that is in the world. Well, here we have the power of the gospel that is at work in us. And it's through that that the call of God comes to us. And so he says, God called you through our gospel. We, we really need to, to grasp this. And I, 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 I need to recognize this more and more in my own life. How, do, how does a person come to faith in Jesus Christ? Apart from being chosen and apart from being called, how, how do they come to Christ? They hear the gospel. This is why we, I said earlier, this is why we share the gospel with our brothers and sisters. This is why we share the gospel, the word of God with our neighbors. This is why we take a risk and with the fullness of the spirit, we're bold in proclaiming the word of God to others because it's through the word of God, through the gospel that we recognize our need and we see God's provision of salvation. Election far from stifling the importance of evangelism and missions elevates it and magnifies it. And it says, go into all the world because God calls people through the hearing of the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Why has God called us through the gospel? He says this, so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that is amazing. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying so that we might obtain perfection. That we might become holy as Christ is holy. That we might become perfect as Christ is perfect. That we might share in the inheritance of Christ as Christ has the inheritance. The goal of our salvation is to, to bring glory to God in his transforming work in our lives. It's not to leave us as we are when he found us. It's not to have a half-done job. It's to finish, to complete a work which he started in us, which is to magnify Christ in us and to glorify us with Christ. It's a wonderful reality that our salvation, which began in eternity past, is completed in eternity future as God brings to completion the work that he started in us. It's astounding. Why did God love you? So that he might save you and bring you to glory. Why did God choose you? So that he might save you and bring you to glory. Why did God call you? So that he might save you and bring you to glory. Why does God sanctify you? That he might save you and bring you to his glory. Why did you believe in the gospel? So that you might be saved and be brought to the glory of Christ. That's the end game of God's love for us is not to leave us how he finds us, but to transform us into the likeness of his beloved son. That's the scope of the saving work of God in us. 
And this isn't just theory. This has really practical application, and that's the verse 15. The response of the saved. How do, how do we respond to this wonderful reality that God has chosen us and called us to be saved and be glorified? He says, so then, brothers. And I, I say this again, the, the term brothers, that, that's the correct translation, but it's understood to be brothers and sisters. It's understood to, uh, uh, to, to refer to all of those who are in Christ Jesus. It's, it could be said in another way, and so, family of God. And so he says then, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Salvation is meant to have a very practical effect on us. The fact that God has loved us from the foundation of the world and chosen us and called us is to have a very practical effect on us. It means we ought never worry that he's going to let us go. It means that we ought never worry that we're going to be deceived by the evil one. It means that we not ought worry that, uh, that uh, the afflictions we face and the sufferings we face are going to separate us from the love of God. He says, no, no, you've been called. You've been chosen. So stand firm. Hang on. God will not let you go. God will not leave you alone. So don't give ground. Don't back away. Don't give up. Don't be swayed. Don't be alarmed. You don't be quickly shaken. God's got you. God will hang on you. God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So stand firm and hold on, cling to, hang on to, commit to. Don't waver. That's how I keep going. If it was all up to me, in my strength and my ability, I'd be done in 10 minutes from now, if not sooner. But God started a good work in me. And God has promised to finish it. God set his love upon me from the foundation of the world so that I might be glorified in Christ. So the temporal suffering that I face, the temporal afflictions that I face, the chaos of the world around me, yes, it impinges upon me. Yes, it, 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 it affects me, but it, it does not shatter me. It does not shake me. It does not fill me with anxiety and fear and worry because I know that God will not let me go. Loved ones, Pastor Barry told us a couple of weeks ago from Revelation chapter 12 that Satan is angry. Do you remember that? He's raging. And when he couldn't succeed in destroying Mary or Mary's child, says he went off to make war against her brethren or the saints. And how are they described? They're described as those who keep the commandments of God and those who the testimony of Jesus. We're in tough. If you love Jesus and you obey God, you're in tough. But you've got a powerful God. You've got a God who loves you. You've got a God who has called you to himself. You've got a God who has opened your eyes to see the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. You've got a God who will finish what he started in your life. So stand firm. Hang on. Believe the truth. 